tonight to the book of Revelation. We have been making our way through, but have had about a month's pause um, between chapters 11 and 12, but we will pick up tonight, uh, Lord willing, with both chapter 12 and chapter 13. So while you're turning there, I'm going to turn to the Lord and ask him for his help now. Father, pray that you would come as the holy, holy, holy God and show yourself to be holy, to be mighty, to be powerful, even over our greatest enemy and our greatest fears and the greatest times of trial that we could face. Show yourself mighty tonight. Show your son powerful tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you uh, are familiar with C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, and if you are, um, you remember perhaps that the final one of those books opens with two curious characters. There is a cunning, talking ape who is appropriately named Shift, and there is a gullible donkey with him who is called Puzzle, also appropriately, I think. And those two uh, talking animals happen across a lion skin floating in the river, which gives Shift a sinister idea. He takes the lion skin out of the river, and he fits it on Puzzle's back, ties it around his belly, fits the legs around the donkey's legs, and begins telling people that this is Aslan, the great king, the great savior of Narnia. And using a costumed donkey as his ruse and as his prophet, Shift begins deceiving the people of the world into worshiping him and giving him their allegiance and bowing to his rule. Of course, anybody uh, with any sense can see that that's no lion there with hooves on the bottom and ears sticking out and so on. And we're who reading, we who are reading the story from the outside know all about the chicanery. But in real time in the story, people are deceived. And in real life, your life and my life, many people like following deceivers. It's really a marvelous picture that Lewis paints, helping us to see how the deceiver operates. Satan is a deceiver, and he is, as Lewis portrays him, an ape. And we're going to read tonight in Revelation 12 and 13 and see that displayed in full color. We've been seeing about the Holy Trinity, haven't we? God in three persons, working in absolute unity and harmony to bring the nations and the peoples of the earth to worship at the Lord's feet. But tonight, in these two chapters, we're going to see Satan aping the Holy Trinity, and dressing up really an ass of a man in messianic clothing so that the people of the earth will be deceived and will bow at Satan's feet, not God's. That's what we're going to see tonight, Satan aping the Trinity, and then we'll see him actually adding a third member to his unholy Trinity as well. Just note this evil triumvirate before we begin reading. Just note these three Characters in chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 12, verse 3, we're going to see a great red dragon. Chapter 13, verse 1, we're going to see a beast coming up out of the sea. And in chapter 13, verse 11, we're going to see another beast coming up out of the earth. A great red dragon whom we'll see as Satan himself. The first beast coming out of the sea 
whom we usually know as the Antichrist and another beast coming out of the earth, which is who is also called later in this book the false prophet. So as we sang, there is a holy trinity, but there will also be in those last days of this planet an unholy trinity put together by Satan himself to dupe the world into worshiping at his feet. And we're going to spend this evening considering each of the members of that unholy triune sinister group. But before we do that, there's already an application point to make. Namely that as we see these three faces in these chapters, we realize already that Satan is a deceiver. That's the first, perhaps the main application to make tonight. Satan is a deceiver and his plan is to deceive the nations by mimicking God by disguising himself as an angel of light, deceiving people with religion that seems almost right. That's his plan. He is an ape, he's a mimicker, and he is a deceiver. That's why we're careful about doctrine. That's why it's not good enough for us to say, for instance, well, you know, lots of people believe in Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, and the Mormons believe in Jesus, and the author of the shack, they all believe in Jesus. Yeah, they have some strange ideas, but they believe in Jesus just like we do. The question is not whether people claim to believe in Jesus. The question is whether they believe in the real Jesus or in a mere puzzle dressed up in lion's clothing. Satan is a deceiver, and his kingdom thrives on counterfeit Christs who are actually no Christs at all. And therefore, we must know the authentic Christ well enough that we're not deceived by so many donkeys, as it were, in lion's clothing. But again, I say tonight our main focus is going to be on Satan's deception plan. We, we need to know the real Christ, but we also need to know the deception plan, the unholy trinity. And in order to do that, before we read these chapters, let me just remind you of a couple of things. First, Remember that in this book as a whole, and especially in these two chapters, we're dealing with highly symbolic language. In fact, we're told that in chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared. Again, chapter 12, verse 3, another sign appeared. These are symbols that we're being given here tonight. So remember that as we read along. We're going to have to interpret the symbols, and we'll do that. But there are so many symbols that we won't have time to look at every detail. So, on one hand, don't take every symbol as being actual, this is what is actually going to be. But then, on the other hand, realize that we do have to work through the symbols and think about them. We'll try to focus on the main ones and the big picture. The second thing to remember is where we are in the book of Revelation. We've taken about a month off, but let me remind you where we have come to when we come to the end of chapter 11. We've seen seven churches uh, in Asia Minor in the first century. And then the next portion of the book gives us seven seals that are broken on a, a scroll, which when open unfolds the trials and the difficulties of world history from the first coming of Christ until and through the present day. And then thirdly, the book unfolds for us or actually blows for us seven trumpets, which tell us and really open up the story of the great tribulation and we are in the midst of those seven trumpets we actually heard the last the seventh of those trumpets blow at the end of chapter 11 and we were told that when that seventh trumpet blew there were loud voices in heaven 
saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet symbolizes, announces the coming of Christ. And yet, here in chapters 12 and 13, before John describes Christ's coming in further detail, he pauses, as it were, to explain to us some of the other things that are going on during this period of the seven trumpets, during this period of the great tribulation. So he walks us through the time period, looking at God's people, looking at what's happening during this time. But in chapters 12 and 13, he pauses before continuing on and says, let me also explain to you what Satan is up to, what the devil is up to during this period as well. So we're in the midst of this great tribulation as we read this, this great difficulty in the last days of planet Earth. And yet, let me say that I think what we're going to see tonight regarding Satan's use of deception, his desire to mimic God and ultimately usurp him, his desire to destroy the church, applies not only at the end of days, but in every season of world history. Satan is always trying to deceive, and he's always trying to destroy. And so his deception tonight, his destruction tonight, though it's out in the future, will help us to see what he's trying to do on a smaller scale, even in our own lives. And yet, let's also remember that the beasts he employs, what we're thinking about tonight, this unholy trinity, has specific application to the final days of trouble on planet Earth. We're thinking out into the future, but we're trying to make application for today. So with those things said, and without further ado, let's look at this first person of the unholy trinity as we read about him in chapter 12. I'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 17. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his head were seven diadems and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. 
And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. I think you can see highly symbolic language. John is not saying that there's going to be an actual red dragon and an actual woman clothed in the sun, but these are pictures that symbolize real things and real persons. And the first thing we really need to do to understand Revelation 12 is to understand and identify the characters that are in this unfolding pictorial drama. There are three main characters that he describes here, and I think seeing them will help you see what the rest of the symbols mean. First, we encounter this woman. Verse 1, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars, and she is, verse 2, with child. Which child we'll see is the Lord Jesus himself. A woman with child, namely Jesus, So you might think, well, this must be Mary. And the Roman Catholic theologians have thought this was Mary for a long time, but you need to note well that the description of her in verse 1 with the stars as a crown clothed with the sun and the moon is very similar to the description of Israel in the Old Testament in Genesis 37 as Jacob has his dream and sees his mother and his father and his brothers in just the same way that we see this woman here. This woman is actually a symbol of God's people, Israel, the people who gave birth to the Messiah. And as we read on, we discover at the end of the chapter that this Israel is not merely made up of ethnic Jews, just willy-nilly, but verse 17, it's made up of those who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is a believing Israel, the Israel of God, as Paul calls them, the church, I think, both Jew and Gentiles, who is symbolized here. That's who the dragon is persecuting in this chapter, the people of God, the believing people of God. But then who is the dragon? Well, based on his actions in this picture drama, we might already surmise that the dragon is Satan himself, right? He tries to devour the child of the woman, Jesus. He makes war with God's holy angels. He persecutes God's chosen people. It certainly sounds like Satan, doesn't it? And of course, in verse 9, we're told that this is indeed who it is, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. So we're looking at God's believing people. They're being persecuted by Satan, who's pictured as a dragon. And then the third character, really the most important character in the story, is the child of the woman. He's born, we're told, and in verse 5, we're told that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But we're also told that he will be rescued from the dragon's clutches by being caught up to God and his throne. And that's, of course, a description of Jesus' birth, of his ascension being caught up to God, and of his return eventually to rule in power. And the first thing this dragon does is to try to devour this child. And we remember that from our readings of the four Gospels, don't we? Satan tried to devour Jesus by means of King Herod when Jesus was born, who killed all the baby boys. Satan was behind that. He tried to devour Jesus by means of his temptation of him in the wilderness, by means of murdering him. God, of course, had his own 
good purposes for all of those events, but Satan meant them for evil that he might, verse 4, devour the child. But he failed. And then having failed, verses 7 through 9, we see that he turned his attention to Michael and his angels. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. Now the question is, when did this happen? Is this a reference to Satan's initial fall from heaven or some later war in heaven? We're not sure But whatever the case may be, not only is Satan not strong enough to overpower the child, Jesus, but he's not strong enough to overpower God's holy angels. And that's good to know as an aside, especially because we are told that the the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. If you fear the Lord, then the angels of God encamp around you, though you cannot see them with your physical eyes, and Satan is not over. Uh, able to overthrow them. Isn't that good news to know? Nevertheless, he will try mightily to overthrow you in the midst of that encampment. And that's what verses 13 through 17 are about. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, the believing people of God. And verse 17, he was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. If Satan can't destroy Jesus and he can't overthrow the holy angels, then he will set his sights on you if you're God's child. That's what we're being told here. And that's exactly what we see him doing in these last days, in this time, times, and half a time, 1260 days uh, that we usually call the Great Tribulation. He's putting all of his efforts into the destruction of the people of God. And he does it in a few ways. Notice verse 13, he does it by means of persecution. Just making it hard for people simply because they're believers. Don't be surprised if you are walking with the Lord if people don't like you for it. Satan is behind that. This is not abnormal. We're told here that he persecutes the woman. He persecutes the bride of Christ. Don't be surprised by that. Satan knows That he can't touch God. But he also knows that by touching you, we're told in the Old Testament, he does, in a manner of speaking, touch the apple of God's eye. And that's what he wants. He wants to get at God. He wants to fight against God. So though he can't get at God directly, he comes at you. So that in hurting you and harming you, he can get at the one who is your master. Don't be surprised if that happens. We must, through many tribulations, we're told, enter the kingdom of heaven. He persecutes. But then notice another of Satan's strategies to swamp God's people in verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Again, symbolic language. What does this mean that Satan's pouring forth water to sweep away God's people with the flood? Well, notice where the water comes from. Out of his mouth. That's where his attack comes from. Steve Wilmshurst, a commentator, points out that this is probably a symbol that Satan's chief weapon against God's people is his words. 
these symbols here, particularly in verse 15, remind us that Satan attacks us with his words. First of all, his words of accusation. That's why he's called the great accuser of the brethren in verse 10. Did you notice that? He persecutes God's people, but he also accuses them, which sometimes gets us further in the dumps than when we're persecuted. It's one thing to be faithful and to have people be upset with you because of it. It's another thing for someone to accuse you and to constantly have these thoughts going through your mind that perhaps you're not adequate enough. But that's one of Satan's great weapons against God's people, to turn to us, to whisper in our ear, do you really think God hears your prayers? I mean, come on. Just think about all that's in your past. Just, just look at your life now, how you keep having to come to him over and over again with the same confessions, 70 times 7. How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus when you're so unlike him? Don't you think God's fed up with you by now? Get over yourself. That's how Satan talks, isn't it? Even now. And evidently, that's the strategy that he'll use hot and heavy in the last days. Accusing God's people, trying to plant seeds of doubt in our minds. And you can see how when that message is going into your ears, it would be easy for you to be swept away with the flood. But notice when he accuses God's people, how they overcome him. Verse 11. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. We overcome those kinds of accusations by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. In other words, when Satan says what he says to us, we say to him, perhaps with a physical voice, but perhaps just in our heart of faith, what you're saying, devil, is true. At least the first part. I do have a lot of mess in my past. And I do keep coming to God with the same confession, 70 times 7. But God's word says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's my testimony, you snake. I don't deny my sin. I admit my sin. I walk in the light. I freely acknowledge how bad that I can be. And yet I know that God loves me and that he covers me with the blood of the lamb. That's my testimony. And that's how we overcome Satan's accusations. By the blood of the lamb... And by the word of our testimony. Satan persecutes. He accuses. But then there's another flood that comes like a torrent out of his mouth towards God's people. Both now and in that time to come. Not only accusations towards the saints. But deception of the world. Persecution, accusation, deception. We see that especially now as we turn our attention to chapter 13. And to look at the second person of this unholy trinity. Satan is going to use another person to deceive the world. Chapter 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horn were ten head were his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. 
They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Again, remember that this is symbolic pictorial language. John is not saying that an actual beast with literally ten horns and seven heads is going to come and deceive the world. That would be pretty obvious, wasn't it? Satan's more subtle than that. This is a a picture of... And the point of the picture is that Satan is going to raise up a beast-like leader in the world, an unholy terror, if you will, whose ten horns here symbolize great power, whose seven heads symbolize great intelligence, the ten crowns or diadems symbolize political authority. All of these granted by Satan, whom we saw in chapter 12, has the same power and intelligence and authority. And then these leopard and bear and lion-like qualities are symbols as well. You remember that in the book of Daniel, perhaps, Daniel described the political powerhouses of his day using those same animal caricatures. And here, says Kendall Easley, they are all combined in one monster. All these political powerhouses and what they symbolize combined in one monster, raw political military power. And that's what we find being described here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Satan's use of political systems, governmental systems to deceive the nations. But I want you to notice something about this political military leader. Listen to all the ways the description of this beast mimics John's other descriptions elsewhere of Jesus. This beast, verse 1, has many diadems on his head, many crowns, just like John says Jesus does in chapter 19. This beast is seated on a throne, chapter, or, or verse 2, just like the lamb is seated on a throne in chapter 7. This beast is worshipped by people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, verse 7. Just like King Jesus is in chapter 7. And most strikingly of all, this beast, in verse 3, is standing as if he has been slain and come back to life. Just like the lamb in chapter 5, standing in heaven as if slain. But alive. This beast, we're told, has a fatal wound that has been healed. Evidently someone who has been killed and raised from the dead. Is that a symbol or is that really going to happen? We're not sure exactly what's going on here, but I think you see what Satan is doing. This beast 
looks a lot like, at least on the surface of things, like Jesus. Crowns, a throne, nations and peoples and tongues. This fatal wound that you can still see, just like we can still see the wounds in Jesus' hands. What is Satan doing here? He's strapping the lion skin on his false messiah. He's dressing someone, particularly some political entity, up like Jesus. He's creating a false savior, a counterfeit messiah, an antichrist, with many of the same traits as the authentic Christ, so that people will be amazed and people will be wooed to worship at his feet, just like we are amazed and wooed to worship at Jesus' feet. Now, this sort of a false Christ set up before the people would have sounded familiar to John's first readers. Remember, they're living in first century Roman culture where emperors, political leaders, set themselves up as gods and got entire nations and cultures to bow to them and use their power, as this leader does, to persecute the church. This wouldn't have sounded unfamiliar at all to first century Christians. In fact, it wouldn't sound unfamiliar for instance, to our brothers and sisters in China or North Korea tonight, where dictators set themselves up as near deities and people fall at their feet, and those who don't, namely the Christians, pay dearly for it. And that same sort of routine we're being told here will be repeated on a grand scale in those final days of planet Earth. Men and women are always willing to fall for counterfeits. This is something to know about yourself. We are always willing to fall for counterfeits. I was standing at a gas station this week. You've been in some place like this with the rack of imitation cologne, right? And so obsession is there and all the other well-known colognes are there. And, And everybody knows it's not the real stuff. It's only a cheap imitation, and yet people buy it. And if people will buy the imitations of some two-bit cologne manufacturer... How much more will people buy the imitations of the master imitator? The master deceiver, Satan himself. We may read chapter 13 about this great antichrist in the pages of scripture. We may read him here and there and everywhere. We may read verses 5 through 6 about his blasphemies and so on. And we may wonder how anybody could fall for his schemes. But in real time, without the fishbowl of John's critique surrounding this character, he'll appear quite the Savior. He'll appear just exactly whom the world's been waiting for, because Satan's a master deceiver. Moreover, many people fall for false messiahs instead of the true one for the same reason they prefer imitation cologne, because the imitation is cheaper. Following the real Christ is costly, following antichrist is not nearly so difficult at least on the surface of things and so it will be with the great and final antichrist capital a his yoke will appear to be easy and desirable so satan's plan in the last days is to make government some apparently some specific governmental leader appear to be the savior that the world has been waiting for but then to use that government system to actually turn on and destroy those people. I say that's his end times master plan, but he seems to be testing that plan out in every prior generation. Isn't it so often true that governments, whether it be kings or presidents, parliaments or congresses, dictators or what have you, that governments so often make themselves out to be their people's salvation? 
Every generation sees governments in the world rise up like this. And isn't it also true that every generation sees massive amounts of people falling for it and going in hook, line, and sinker so that we trust in the government? And we may think, oh, well, that's those people in in North Korea. That's those Germans at the time of Hitler. They're the ones who thought their government was the savior. Well, what about us in America, where so often, instead of bringing our petitions to God when things go wrong, we, we march on Capitol Hill as though God can't answer. Instead of repenting when there's no rain, we blame global warming and then trust the government protocols to save us from it and blame the government when they don't as if the president can make it rain. And every four years when the elections roll around, we're either over the moon because so-and-so is going to usher in a brave new world or we're murmuring in our coffee cups because, quote, life in this country will never be the same. I'm afraid that so often we are prone to fall for the exact scheme that the devil is using to lead the world astray and will use finally to lead it astray in the end. If we're not careful, we'll find ourselves talking as though government is or ought to be the savior of us. But that's utter and absolute foolishness. And yet, since people think that way and place so much weight upon presidents and congresses and princes and kings, it's easy to see how Satan will get the world by the tail in those last days. Create a false savior who seems like he's going to save the world through government and people follow like lemmings off the edge of a cliff. So what's the solution? How do we keep ourselves from falling for the false Messiah? Should we find ourselves living in the last days? Well, the solution is that in the present day, we don't put our hope in false saviors. Cease from man, as the prophet Isaiah said famously. Stop looking to kings and princes as your hope. Stop putting stock in the decisions they make. Now, is it important whether we have gay marriage in our country or whether we pay too many taxes or whether we have one form of health insurance or another? Surely those things are important and we should vote and act accordingly. We're not saying that we go hide in a cave, but what we are saying is at the end of the day, we could have the best government on planet Earth and we still would have drought this summer. We could have the best president in the world and you and I would still face cancer and miscarriages and so on. The Congress could do everything right and all of us would still be getting older and nearer to the grave. And we'd still be in our sins, desperately in need of a real Savior. So the way I say to avoid falling for the false Messiah then is to avoid falling for little false messiahs now, whether it be government or money or modern medicine or education or technology or whatever it is that we think is going to save the world. We're thankful for all those things, but there's ultimately, there's only one hope, is there, isn't there? Only one hope for the world, only one hope for mankind, and that is, verse 8, that our names would be written in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. He is our hope. Now, we need to see finally that this unholy trinity not only includes a false messiah, but also, as we said, a false prophet, the second beast in verses 11 through 18. So let's read those briefly. 
Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all the small and great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now just notice this second beast has all the marks of a religious leader. The first beast, political leader. The second beast, religious leader. He induces people to worship, verse 12. He performs miraculous signs, verse 14. He commissions the making of an idol of the first beast, verse 14 to be used in a religious shrine. This beast, this third person of the unholy trinity, is a religious deceiver. And later in the book, as I said, John will begin calling him the false prophet. But notice how closely this religious leader is tied to the state. He is given authority by the first, more political beast in verse 12. He induces people to worship this first political beast in verse 14. And then in verses 16 and 17, he somehow gains control over trade and business. So he's a religious character, yes, but he's really a religio-political character, a prophet or priest whose authority is tangled up with that of the state. And again, we can hear how this would have resonated and sounded familiar to John's first century readers. Because in those days, the pagan priests were all tied up with the Roman emperors and avidly involved in the cult of worshiping the emperors. And we can see, too, how Protestants at the time of the Reformation saw in this chapter shades of the Pope, this great religious leader who also has immense political power, who induces people to pray to images who controls people's finances in many ways, and all of this done while he's in bed with the emperor. The truth of the matter is that while chapter 13 seems to describe a heightening of these kinds of deceptions during the Great Tribulation, as we've already said, Satan is always working in these same ways. He often uses political messiahs to lead people astray, quote-unquote messiahs, and he often equips those political messiahs with willing clergymen who use religion to foster the deception and destroy people's lives. Read about the Islamic world, and you'll see this on grand display, not in every country, but in some of them, in many of the same ways as in first-century Roman medieval Catholicism. The church or the religion and the state combining together in corruption to hold people captive. That's Satan's great strategy. And it's a good warning to us not to be led astray by it. 
as we saw in Hebrews, thir- in Hebrews 13 on Sunday, not to be led astray by varied and strange teachings, not to be led astray by charismatic, winsome religious leaders. We religious leaders, we clergy are only as helpful to you as the amount of Bible truth that we hand out. Never forget that. The truth is in the scriptures alone, not in me, not in any other leader. And to the extent that any man stands in a pulpit like this and leads you in any other direction, he's simply a foreshadowing of this great false prophet in Revelation 13. My job is not to lead you anywhere but here and let you take with this book, take this book and run with what it says. And make no mistake, there are men everywhere within the walls of Christendom even who are doing exactly what Revelation 13 describes. But in those final days, we're told, these various streams of Satan's religio-political strategy will coalesce into a mighty, raging river of corruption. And the stranglehold of this prophet, we're told, will be such in verse 17 that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, the mark of this beast, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, there are $2 million questions that arise from this verse. First, what is the mark of the beast? Is it your social security number? Is it a barcode stamped on the inside of your wrist or computer chip inserted into the top of your hand? Is this verse speaking about the evil of having one world currency that will all have this same mark on it? Well, notice a couple of things. First, remember, as I've said several times, this chapter is filled with symbolic language. So the mark here may be a literal mark or number, but it may be a symbol of something far more significant. In fact, we saw something similar in chapter 7, didn't we? Where we read that the followers of the Lamb are sealed on their forehead. Now, does that mean that the followers of Jesus literally are going to have golden circles imprinted on their foreheads? I don't think so. I think that that ceiling that we saw was a symbol of God's protection on their lives. And it may well be that these marks that are spoken of here are symbols of Satan's authority over people's lives as well. But whatever the case may be, what might this mark symbolize here in chapter 13? Well, the beast, remember, is primarily a religious mover and shaker. He wants people to worship him and to worship the other beast. He wants people to buy into a false religious system. And so the mark here is going to have to do with the religious system, it seems. In other words, I don't want you to be afraid that you're going to get sucked into having the mark of the beast and then later realize what you've done. No, the point of this is stamping on your hand or your forehead, whatever that may mean, is that you've agreed to worship the beast. This is not sort of some governmental plan or currency program that Christians are going to get sucked into without knowing it. No, the people who refuse to fall down and worship this beast are the ones who won't have the mark. Just as in the days of Daniel, the people who refused to fall down and worship, those were the ones who were punished. And in that last day, we'll know who we are you will know that you're following Jesus or that you're following the beast. So instead of worrying that you might get a barcode or a computer chip or that you might have the euro currency and that that's going to ruin everything for you, be concerned to get your eyes fixed on the true Christ so that you won't find yourself worshiping the false Christ or listening to 
false prophets. And if you have your eyes fixed on the true Christ, you'll know how to keep Satan's mark, Satan's authority off of your life. That's the first thing. The second big question in Revelation 13 has, of course, to do with that number at the end of the chapter 666. What does that number mean? Well, some have attempted to interpret that number by noting that in the ancient world, before numeric symbols were in place, digits one, two, three, and so on, before they had digits like we have, people denoted certain numbers using specific corresponding letters of the alphabet. Every letter of the alphabet, in other words, had also a number quantity attached to it, so that the Greek letter alpha also stood for the number one. The Greek letter beta stood for the number two, and so on. There were numbers that stood for individual digits, some that stood for tens, and some that stood for hundreds, and that's how they did their math and so on. So using this alphanumeric format and adding up the number value that goes with each letter in a person's name, each of you would have a number quantity attached to your name. If we applied this number system to English as they did in Greek, my last name, Strassner, would equal 836. I figured it out this week, and your name would equal something else. And many readers of Revelation have taken that formula and tried to apply it to this number, 666. And perhaps John intended that that's what would be done. But the problem is that there are an infinite number of names that could equal 666. Think about it. How many different sets of numbers can you add up to get that sum? And then how many different orders can you place the letters in that correspond to those numbers? And once you've gotten all the different number sets and all the different orders that each of those number sets could go in, how many different names could you possibly come up with? The suggestions are myriad. If you read the commentaries, you'll see that they are. And no one in 2,000 years has come up with a definite, certain answer as to who it could be doing it that way. So either we don't yet have the wisdom and the understanding that John says this calls for in verse 18, or perhaps our method of understanding this number isn't the best method. In fact, let me make a different suggestion to you as to what John may have in mind. And let me do it by asking you, what number have we seen again and again in this book of Revelation symbolizing completeness and perfection? Seven, right? There are seven churches in the first few chapters. There are seven seals on God's scroll of world history. There are seven trumpets blown in the great tribulation. There are seven bowls of God's wrath poured out in its completion. The Holy Spirit is described as the sevenfold Spirit of God. Seven is the number of completion. Everything that God seems to do in this book is done in sevens. It's the number of perfection. And therefore, what better number to symbolize the Holy Trinity than 777? And in contrast, what better number to symbolize the unholy trinity? What better number to symbolize Satan's failed attempts at copying God, at Satan's failed and flawed human henchmen? What better number than 666? He always comes up short in his attempts to copy God. I think that's the point. 
Satan's great design in the world is to try and ape God and produce a counterfeit trinity so that he can lead people astray into hell. But all three members of this trinity try as they might fall short of God's perfection. Satan himself, the first person of this unholy trinity, more powerful than any other earthly creature, but he falls short of the power of God. Can't even defeat Michael and his angels. The Antichrist, the second person of this unholy trinity, will deceive nearly the whole world. And yet Christ will triumph in the end. The false prophet has great power to bring people to worship the Antichrist, but it does not match the power of the Holy Spirit to bring people to the feet of the Christ. And to quote the commentator Wilmshurst again, six is one short of seven. Thus, the ideal symbolic number for someone who pretends to be all that God is and yet ultimately fails time after time after time would surely be six, six, six. In every way, the unholy trinity shows itself to be just a cheap imitation, easily recognized, easily rejected, verse 18, by those who have understanding. And I think that's what this number 666 is all about. When discerning men and women stand back and look at these beasts, they'll be found lacking. They will be found wanting. They will be seen as the charlatans that they are. And the difference between these two trinities... The holy and the unholy is as clear to see, John is saying, I think, as the difference between 666 and 777. Do you recognize this perfect 777 triune, threefold, holy, 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 complete, perfect God? Are you familiar with the holy, 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 almighty God? Do you know the genuine article? In other words, do you really have a heavenly father whom you know and love and into whose lap you can crawl in prayer? Do you walk and talk with the bridegroom? Do you hear the still small voice of the spirit? If you only know the thrice holy God, if you only know the one whose number is 777, you'll never be led astray by either Satan or his human emissaries whose imperfections only add up to 666. Know the Lord. Know the triune God, and you'll never be convinced by the counterfeits. Let him, verse 9, who has an ear, hear. Hear.